Uh, I will pray for that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now, and that will be one of the things we remember. And I just also want to highlight this as something that you can be praying uh, for throughout the week. Lord, we come to you as your people together, as your body. We thank you that you are the head of the church, and that you are the prophet, the priest, and the king. Lord, you are ruling, and you are interceding for us, and you are teaching us what we need to believe and do through your word and through your spirit. So, Father, we pray that as we assemble ourselves together in your name, Lord, you are here with us, and you are guiding us, and you are filling us with your spirit, that we might know more of the glories of the gospel, and we would better align ourselves uh, under you as, as you are our head. Uh, we would better reflect your character to the world. Lord, we, we are amazed that you would call us your body as if, because we are the, your representatives here on earth. That is such a privilege. It's especially amazing that uh, just before we believe in you, we are rebels, we are sinners, we are those who would cry out, crucify And yet you take us and you forgive us, you bring us to you, and then you send us into the world to be your representatives. Lord, that is an amazing thing. We pray that we would steward that responsibility well. And that as we are here, we would be understanding more and more of what it means to be the body of Christ as we live out our lives. And as we represent you. Lord, we pray that we would, our our order of ourselves as the church would reflect you because that's who we are. Lord, we pray for safe haven this week. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to give shelter to uh, people who wouldn't have it uh, otherwise. We pray that as they're here, not only would they have a a warm place to stay, but they would understand the warmth of your love and your grace and your kindness in Christ. So, Lord, help us to um, relate to them well and to welcome them and to rejoice with them in your gospel. As we turn our attention to your word, we pray you'd give us illumination. Give us our minds the ability to concentrate and to think and to apply your word to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the question I want us to begin thinking about this morning is, does Jesus have anything to do with our relationships here on earth? Does Jesus have anything to do with our relationships with other people here on earth? Now, we believe, of course, that Jesus has everything to do with our relationship with God in heaven. In the Christian story, which we believe is the true story, is that Jesus died on the cross, forgiving our sins, bringing us into a relationship with him, if we believe in him. You see, without him, we would have no relationship with God. So Jesus is, of course, necessary for our relationship with God and instrumental for that. But does Jesus have anything to do with our relationships here on earth? Is that his domain? Is that his prerogative? Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize, it doesn't matter who you are, that relationships on earth are very, very significant to our lives, right? I mean, they, they fill us with joy sometimes. They make us cry as we experience brokenness in the relationships. All kinds of things happen. But they're important, They're important to God, too, because Jesus said that um, how we interact with others says something about the very nature of the Trinity. He wanted us to be one as he and the Father are one. So so we see that, that, that they are significant, that they are important. If we don't say that Jesus has impact in our relationships on earth, we've really restricted his sphere to be kind of small. Now, the passage that we're going to look at today, I think, really shows us 
how Jesus is very important for our relationships on earth. But before we jump right into this passage, uh, let's, I want to just set the stage for how we are going to see Jesus as important in our relationships. It's not because Paul is just given teaching on that. If you've read the passage ahead of time, you know that it doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, no, I want you to know, brothers, that Jesus should be at the center of your relationships. He doesn't say that. That's not how this passage works. Instead, we see it by way of example. You see, the beauty of the New Testament, one of the things I love about the New Testament is that it's not written as a textbook. And anybody who gets bored reading textbooks can say amen to that, right? It's not a textbook for, you know, just the teaching of everything we need to know. It, now, it teaches us everything we need to know for life and godliness. It's all here. But it's here in the form of letters, in the form of examples. So not only does it teach us theology and practice, but it allows us to also see this theology and practice played out into people's lives, played out in the practicality, the nitty-gritty of people's lives. It, when we read this passage, it's sort of like sitting on Paul's shoulder watching how he interacts with other people, how he works in relationships. I mean, wouldn't you like to do that? Wouldn't you like to see how Paul relates to other people? That would be a wonderful thing. Well, this passage sort of takes us into that world, allowing us to see how Paul interacts with others. So I pray that this will be helpful for our lives as we think about how we relate to one another. I pray it will be helpful for your life at work and school and in your family. But I pray especially that it will be helpful for our life together as a church. So if you haven't already done so, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. It's on page 981 in your Bibles in the pew. Um, It's also in the notes that I think you should have. If you don't have notes, um, then you can get them on the way out because they have the application questions for this week. But um, page 981, Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 9, we're going to the end of the, the chapter. Here's what Paul says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my fellow, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because, he, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died in the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, that's a very different passage than what we've looked at so far in Philippians, isn't it? And you think of, I don't know if you've done this, uh, if you have Google Earth on your computer, but if you ever played with it, and you can kind of, you know, soar all the way up and see all of North America, and you can 
zoom way down and see your own street. And in our case, I think on Google Earth in our house, we, our kids are playing out in the front yard. It's, it's actually captured on there. So you, you, you get this huge you know, scale of, of seeing the whole big picture, and then you can zoom down to the street level and see your own house. You see your street. You can drive to someone else's house and, and see how that goes. Well, this passage, it's kind of like that. We, the previous parts in Philippians we were kind of like at that, you know, a thousand feet in the air seeing all of North America. When we were learning about Christ being in the form of God and that he humbled himself and he, he took on human flesh and he, he was obedient to the point of death. And God highly exalts him above every name. That's the, 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 the big picture. That's, you know, we're, we're looking at the aerial view. We're seeing all of history kind of compressed in a few sentences. That's one perspective. And then Paul kind of goes all the way down to the ground level, to the street view, and talks about his travel plans, which is really, really interesting here. Um, And one of the things that I think will help us, since now we're at the street view, is to actually think about what's actually happening as Paul's writing this. So, first of all, Paul is writing from jail. Now, you have to realize that jails are not... Prisons are not publicly funded back then as they are today. So if you're in jail and you like eating, well, you needed your friends to help you out by bringing you some money or food. And if, you're, if Paul's your friend in jail, then it's kind of risky to help him out because Paul's a religious criminal. And uh, if you're going to help Paul, well, that's going to maybe expose you as a Christian as well. And you're going to risk being treated in the same way he is. However, the Philippians want to take that risk. So they send one of their members, Epaphroditus, with some money for Paul. Now, that's good. Um, What's bad, though, is Epaphroditus gets sick and nearly dies. And all we know is that this sickness had something to do with him helping Paul. Uh, Perhaps he was attacked by a wild animal on his way. Uh, Perhaps he got wet and cold and got pneumonia. Perhaps maybe somebody personally harmed him because of his association with Paul. Uh, Either way, Epaphroditus nearly died serving Paul. Um, The other thing that's going on in this passage, just sort of the historical situation here, is that Paul wants to check on the believers to see how they're doing. Uh, We read throughout this book that there were um, issues of disunity going on. There were also uh, problems with opponents. Paul cares about this church, and he desperately wants to be there with the believers. But, of course, he's in jail, so he can't go himself, and therefore he is sending Timothy along. So those are the circumstances. That's kind of what, you know, that's the picture. There are the circumstances, what's going on in Paul's life, that forms sort of the, the backdrop of this letter. But if you were listening to the passage, and if you've looked at it ahead of time, you know that the passage isn't really just about these circumstances. It's not about the external circumstances. What it's really about are the relational interactions that happen under those circumstances. So it's it's sort of like this, and this is the best example I could come up with. But you probably, you might have heard of the TV show series a few years ago, Lost. The premise is you have a bunch of people on an island, and they're lost, and uh, they have all kinds of relationships that, you know, by nature of being on the island together, and, and certain things come out of those relationships. So you have, you have friendship and loyalty, but you also have jealousy and division and hatred. It's a Lord of the Flies thing kind of going on. All of these things surface in their relationships together. Well, the same kind of thing is going on here. That's what this passage is about. But unlike lost, they're all good things. 
You know, this, the circumstances going on, and there's relational interaction between Paul and Epaphroditus and the Philippians. And in this relationship, good things surface. Things bubble out. So, for instance, verse 19, there is joy. Paul says that he wants to hear how they're doing so he may be cheered up. Uh, verses 20 to 21, there is concern in that Timothy is the only person who Paul has access to who really cares about their welfare. There's loyalty, as Timothy was a faithful servant to Paul, as a son is to his father. And you think about it, Timothy, we read later on in the Bible, had no real earthly father who was a godly example. And Paul, we we have all reason to believe, had no children. So here, they're kind of like the father and son that they never had, or now they have with each other. We also see in verse 30, there's courage, as Epaphroditus risks his life and almost dies for the sake of Christ. And there was at least the potential for sorrow, as Paul says that if Epaphroditus had died, he would have had sorrow upon sorrow. And there's honor, as Paul tells them to treat people like Epaphroditus and Timothy with honor. So you see all these really good things. Even the sorrow is a good thing because, you know, it means he was close to the person um, if the person would have died. That's why he would have had this sorrow. All these really positive emotions are flowing out of their life together. And that's great. That's good. That's what we see happening. But the question then is, okay, what is explicitly Christian about these interactions, about this going on? I mean, we could look at how Timothy is a proven servant and how he's concerned for their welfare, and we could be encouraged, okay, go be like Timothy. But we haven't then gotten yet to how Jesus is a part of those relationships. So we have to go further and not just see this positive fruit, we have to scratch a little bit below the surface and see, well, does Jesus have anything to do with this? You know, I, uh, if you read other letters that are written back at this time, they actually sound very similar to how Paul talks here. So, for instance, I read of one letter. Uh, this was written by a soldier to his wife, and it says, I received your letter and rejoiced to know that you and the children are well. So people wrote about this kind of stuff back then, this this travel log, so to speak, is what it kind of looks like, is, is normal for letters. I'm going to go here and see you. How are you doing? I mean, those things are normal. But what makes Paul's experience of that explicitly Christian? What makes it a little bit different that shows how Jesus is sort of the center of it all? Well, I want to see three things here. That if we scratch below the surface, we see Jesus at the center of it here. One, the relationships are in the sphere of Christ. These are in your notes. Two, the relationships, in the relationships, the people follow the example of Christ. And three, the relationships are for the sake of the gospel. So here's this kind of ordinary situation. Somebody's in jail. That that happens back then, particularly at the time. You you could be in jail and be innocent. It was more likely then than it is now. And people, you know, were travel, people would get sick. Normal situations, yet there's a different layer to it because of Paul's relationship with Jesus. And I think we see it in those three areas. So first, we see that the relationships are in the sphere of Christ. There's a phrase that shows up three times in this passage. It's the phrase, in the Lord. Look at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. See that there? Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus. Verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself will come shortly. And then verse 29, receive him 
in the Lord. Now, that phrase is absent from the other letters that were sent around this time. In the Lord wasn't there. One commentator put it this way, what Paul means by in the Lord here. The Lord Jesus is the sphere in which Paul's hopes move. His plans are formed with a consciousness of his living relationship with the Lord. The Lord Jesus is the realm in which Paul and his colleagues think and act. So here, Paul's, what's he saying there? Paul's whole life is in the Lord. His plans are in the Lord. His hopes are in the Lord. The way believers relate to one another is in the Lord. That's interesting. What I think is really remarkable about this is that this same language of being in the Lord or in Christ, which is really the same thing, is used when Paul is at that, you know, a thousand feet in the air, aerial big picture view as well. And for Paul, um, union with Christ, being in the Lord, is like the linchpin of Paul's theology. For Paul, we are justified. We're, we're made righteous. We're, we're seen as righteous in God's eyes because we are in the Lord. We're sanctified. We're made holy because we're in the Lord. We're adopted in the Lord. We're glorified in the Lord. We, we are who we are as believers in the Lord. And, and in Christ, our union with Christ becomes the most essential part of our identity. That's who we are. That's really basic and standard for, for Paul's theology. But then, Paul says we make our travel plans in the Lord. We... We hope in the Lord. This, it's on the street level, too. You see, Paul is, with that, that Google Earth analogy, Paul's way up in the air, or he's way down at the street level, but it's really, it's all riding on the same thing. The same basic idea is what makes his reality, and that idea is that he's in Christ. He's in Christ, whether he's looking at salvation from a you know, really high up in the air perspective, and it's about being in Christ if he's on the ground, thinking of his travel plans thinking of how he interacts with other believers. It's all because of who he is in Christ. So friends, what does that mean for us? It means that there should be no division between the secular and the sacred in Paul's mind. There's no sphere in which our identity in Christ doesn't have a direct impact on everything we do. Christ informs all of our life. Christ informs our theology. Christ informs how we think about God. Christ informs about how we interact with every person on planet Earth. We do it all in the sphere of Christ. And that's why Paul can go from extolling the glories of Christ in the beginning of chapter 2 to talking about being sick and his travel plans at the end of chapter 2. And he's not switching from religious, his religious life, his you know, churchy life to his ordinary life. It's all part of the same deal. It's part of his life in Christ. It's all one big picture. So friends, is that how you live your life? Do you see that there really is no difference between your life at church and your religious life and your life in whatever other area you're in, at school, at work, with your family? Do you see that it is all the same? It is all in Christ. I've heard people say at times, well, that's not something we should do in the house of God. They mean that's not something we should do in church. But, you know, actually, there's nothing sacred about this physical space. It's just a building. However, if we are in Christ, there is something sacred about our lives and especially our lives together. And that should inform not just what we do inside this building, but should inform what we do in all areas of our life. 
So the first thing we see is that everything takes place, most importantly in this passage, our friendships, our relationships, it takes place in the sphere of union with Christ, in the sphere of being in Christ. And that's how we have our interactions with one another. But the other thing we see here that makes Christ central to our relationships is that he is our example. We need to follow the example of Jesus in our relationships. Now we see the way uh, Paul Um, we see Paul explain that through the way he talks about Timothy in verse 20. And this requires a couple of steps, but I think you can follow along. So look at verse 20. This is what Paul says about Timothy. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, when he says he has nobody else who's concerned about their welfare and everybody else seeks their own interest, I don't think he means like, you know, out of the entire church. He means those who are actually present where he is. Nobody else that he can send from where he is from kind of his party to them. Obviously, Epaphroditus is somebody who's concerned about their welfares too, but he doesn't count because he's from Philippi. Paul is thinking about those there who he can send from where he is and Timothy's the only one who's doing that. Uh, perhaps Paul is thinking about what he said earlier in chapter 1, how there's people who are actually trying to preach the gospel in order to you know, undermine Paul's ministry. There's people who are doing that. They're preaching the true gospel, so Paul rejoices that they're preaching the gospel, but they're not doing it to serve and love others. They're doing it to sort of bolster themselves. Well, either way, Timothy is one who is genuinely concerned for their welfare who's not seeking his own interests, but is seeking the interests of others. Now, what's interesting about that is that this is the same language that Paul uses back in chapter, back in verse 4. If you have your Bibles open and you look in Philippians, you go up to chapter, um, verse 4 in chapter 2. Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And that's the same thing that the same language that Paul is using to talk about Timothy. So Timothy is an example of exactly what Paul is calling the believers to be. Timothy is somebody who is not looking after his own interests, but looking after the interests of others. And where do you think Timothy learned how to do that? Well, from following the example of Christ, of course. Because right after uh, Paul says... um, don't look after your own interests, but also the interests of others. Then he, he talks about Jesus, who is the extreme example of that. Jesus was in the form of God, Paul explains, but didn't use that equality with God as something for his own advantage, but he emptied himself, he humbled himself. Jesus is the extreme example of somebody who is not looking out for themselves, but looking out for the interests of others. And Timothy is following in that example. And why does Paul bring this up? Well, on the one hand, it's to commend Timothy to them. But also, it is to say, hey, guys, be like Timothy. Timothy is doing it right. He is following Christ. So follow Timothy insofar as Timothy is following Christ. He is not looking out for his own interest, but he is looking out for the interests of others. Now, it is interesting here, and it seems like it fits with our experience of reality, how rare it is that somebody would be concerned about somebody else's interest. I mean, we live in a world where it is normal, as Paul says, for people to seek after their own interests. Don't, don't we experience that? We, we see people who, who you know, they, they might appear to be interested 
in others, but really it's, it's for their own interest, and perhaps we see that in our own lives as well. I mean, we should ask ourselves, how often do we do something for somebody else? And it's really not to get anything in return. It's not so they'll like us more. It's not so that we'll be better positioned in their friendship. Oh, I'll do this for somebody. They will owe me. But we really do it simply and entirely for their benefit. We're not thinking of ourselves and what we'll get out of it. We're just serving another person. Well, that is rare, but yet it is. it ought to be present in the church when we're following the example of Jesus. But, but how do we do that? It is rare in order to have that perspective. How do we have that perspective? And just one thing I want to point out here for you. It's, it's by following the example of Jesus, but it's not simply looking at Jesus as our example here. Jesus was the one who didn't seek his own interest, but he sought the interest of others. He sought the interest of us, right? He, he humbled himself and he died on the cross to take our place so that we wouldn't experience the wrath and curse of God, but could enjoy the blessings that Christ deserved. Christ served our own interest. And it's only by clinging to that, it's only by knowing Christ as the one who served our own interest, and that our interests are entirely served and satisfied in Christ, that we can go and serve the interests of others. Think of this case study here. Um, A friend of mine told me, A friend of mine lives in a Muslim country, and he told me about an expression that some people use. And the expression is something like, I'm earning credit. So they'll they'll be walking along the street, and uh, uh, so my friend, who's a Christian with a Muslim, they're they're walking along the street, the Muslim guy uh, gives uh, a a coin to a a homeless person, a poor person, begging on the street, and says, I've just gotten some credit. Now think about it. Is that person serving the poor person, or is that person serving themselves? They're serving themselves. They're giving the money to themselves. They're trying to do something for another, but because they see themselves entirely in debt, needing to earn favor with God, because they think there's a standard and they've got to climb up to the top of that standard, they're always, every time they do something good for another person, actually really serving themselves. So what's the only way that we could actually serve another person and not be thinking that I'm doing this really for myself? Is it Christ? has already completely and entirely served us. So if if he gives us his righteousness, we stand before God completely righteous in Christ. There's no way to get more righteous than the righteousness of Christ. It's already given to us. That frees us up not to be concerned about our own interests, not to be securing more righteousness for ourselves. It frees us up to be concerned about others. There was an expression that Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said, and it's a little bit provocative. It could be taken a little bit too far, but it's, uh, it does serve us well. He said, uh, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. And his point, now, his point wasn't that God isn't glorified or pleased in our good works. Of course he is. But the point is, God isn't there measuring our good works to see if we're acceptable for him because we already are in Christ. So we're not doing our good works for him in that same way, but our neighbor over here. Isn't desperate need our good works? They might be suffering. We need to love our neighbor. We do our good works, obviously for God, but also for one another, knowing that God has completely given us the righteousness of Christ, so we stand accepted in him. So, friends, the gospel is what allows us to seek the interest of others. By knowing who we are in Christ, understanding that we're secure in Christ, that we don't have anything to prove to ourselves or others, 
we rest in that security in Christ, we're free to genuinely serve and care for others. So what have we seen? Jesus is the sphere of our relationships. They all take place in him, in Christ. We've seen that Jesus is the example of our relationships, but not only is he just the example of how we need to serve others, it is through understanding how he serves us that we're then able to have a basis, a platform to serve others. And finally, we want to see that our relationships are all for the sake of the gospel. That's scratching below the surface a little bit and seeing that these circumstances that Paul is under, which are entirely normal circumstances, Paul, because he's in Christ, because he has a relationship with Christ, Christ affects every area of his life. And it affects him really most clearly here, how everything he's doing, he's concerned about the gospel. We see this uh, in the way that both Timothy and Epaphroditus are related to Paul in a kind of working relationship with Paul because of their common mission in the gospel. In other words, the reason why the relationship between Epaphroditus and Timothy has developed is not because both Paul and these other guys like watching the football games, not because they both enjoy playing golf together. It's not because they worked out in the gym together. It's because they were both concerned about advancing the gospel of Jesus together. That's what brought them together. That's the bond. So look at verse 22 here. But you know of Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Look at that. He has served with me in the gospel. It is their work in the gospel that has brought them together as father and son. And by the way, we we need to understand first, what does it mean when they work in the gospel? Well, what it means is that Paul is doing everything he can. His passion in life, his motivation is to get the death and resurrection of Jesus to people, to to get them to hear it, to get them to see it in his own example. Uh, Paul says in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul wants to bring the gospel to the eyes and ears of people everywhere. And then he wants to train them to understand the gospel and the implications of the gospel for their lives so that they would be rooted and grounded in Christ. That's the work of the gospel for Paul. So when Paul says that he's doing everything for the work of the gospel, he means that he's trying to get the knowledge of the gospel out there, trying to help people understand its implications. Now, and that's why he's writing the letter. That's why he's sending Timothy. That's why he's doing everything he can to help them understand the gospel. And that's why, that's what brings him and Timothy together. He says uh, in the very first verse of this book, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. They're united together because they're both servants of Christ. We could translate that slaves of Christ even. Paul and Timothy were both servants together for the sake of the gospel. Interesting, back then it would be more common if Paul, because Paul's so much older than Timothy, for them to relate more as a master to a servant. Maybe somebody else would have written that he serves with me as a servant, as if Paul is the master of Timothy. But that's not the relationship they have here. They both understand that they are servants of Christ. They both align themselves under Christ. And then they don't have a master-servant type of relationship. They have a father-son type of relationship because they're both servants of Christ. So it's that serving of Christ that has changed their identity and brought them together. Look also at what Paul says about Epaphroditus. He says, verse 25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, 
my, and listen how he describes them, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He's, he probably, you know, maybe understanding this wrong, but it doesn't appear that he had a whole lot of really close contact with Epaphroditus, right? Paul's, you know, he's in jail, and there's not a lot of visitation that goes on there. But Epaphroditus comes as this person who is on a mission to serve Jesus and willing to risk his life to serve Jesus and to help Paul. And automatically, how does the Apostle Paul then see Epaphroditus? He sees him as a brother. He sees him as a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. They're united together, not because they have this long history of, of knowing each other. He's not a brother because he's you know, got so close over the years. He's a brother because they're united in the common mission of the gospel. He sees how Epaphroditus, verse 30, nearly died in the work of Christ. He sees that he was willing to give up his life, and Paul knows he's willing to give up his life as well. And it's that common bond of doing everything for the sake of the gospel that pulls them together. As I was uh, studying this passage, I, I couldn't help but then reflect in my own life and see how God has been kind to me, and I've known something of what Paul means here when he talks about this. I, I think of being in college and doing evangelism projects, and we would, we would stand underneath uh, the lecture hall in sort of a main travel area at the university I went to, and we would, we would try to give out hot chocolate and coffee as a way to share the gospel. And it was those people who I served with that I got really close to, because we were laughed at together, and we shared the gospel together, and we tried as hard as we could to, to get the gospel out to people. It was that common bond that brought us together. I think of pastoral ministry, serving alongside other people, and, and especially when some crisis comes up, and we're doing everything we can to, to mobilize and to get the gospel out and to help people understand it better, and it brings us together. Uh, recently, as many of you know, my wife and I took a trip to uh, London, and I did it for schooling purposes, but one of the highlights of the trip was spending time with a family who we served with when we were in Turkey, and now they're living in London, and it was such a great time to, to be with them and to think, oh, we served the gospel together. It was that common mission, that common goal that brought us together and brought us very close. When you lock arms with brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of the gospel, there is a closeness that develops. It's the shared bond of Christ. And then, in God's economy, it seems that he uses that bond of closeness to help advance the gospel even more. It's because we are one in Christ that people know who we are as his disciples, and that advances the gospel even more. You see, if you know that your fellow brother and sister in Christ is doing everything they can to get the gospel out, even risking their life, it also helps you overlook things. You know, if you know that that it push comes to shove, you'll You'll die for the gospel. If you have differences in other areas, it makes you overlook those, and you have the common bond in Christ that is strong. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with doing other things as believers together. Hopefully, many of you will watch the football game together today, or, or you'll do other things together. It's okay to go play golf or go to the gym together. That's good. We, we have, you know, sometimes that helps to have a relationship that we can build other things upon. But think about it. If you're together as Christians... And the gospel isn't a part of what your relationship is founded on. And the advancement of the gospel isn't what you're doing together as friends. Is that really Christian friendship? Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't experienced the deep friendships in the body of Christ. 
perhaps, and I only say perhaps because I can't know for sure, but perhaps it's because there's not a gospel focus in those relationships. I mean, think about it. If you come to church and you come to church to seek your own interests, you're not going to link arms with other brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to be an island because you're seeking yourself. But if you come to church to seek the interests of others, and particularly that the gospel would advance to others, both in evangelism and helping other people be more rooted in Christ, then that is going to bring you together. That is going to help you grow in Christ. One more thing that helps this as well. People, um, Paul says at the end of this passage to honor Epaphroditus, honor people like him, honor people like him and Timothy who risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. And we should do that as a church. Think about who the world honors, the kind of people that the world honors. It honors people who are good-looking. It honors people who are rich, people who have you know, charisma. It honors those who are smart. It doesn't usually honor those who risk their lives and strive very hard for the advancement of the gospel. But our church should be different. The church should be the place where those people are honored, those people are lifted up as an example. And we can say we want to follow those people insofar as they are following Christ. So in the end, does Jesus have anything to do with our relationships? He has a lot to do with our relationships. He does so if we realize that we live in him. Our lives are in him. And there's no difference between the secular and the sacred. He is our example. And the relationships that he puts us in, especially in the body of Christ, are for the advancement of the gospel. So friends, we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a moment. As we do that, let us reaffirm our relationship with the Lord and with one another as we seek to advance the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ is our life. We thank you that we can be in him and we are justified in him. We are counted righteous in him. We are made holy and blameless in him, both before you and in our actual life experience. And we have our relationships with one another in Christ. So, Lord, we pray that we would understand our lives more and more rooted and grounded in Christ for your honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.